want to welcome everybody here tonight. Very excited to, to be with you and to, to worship the Lord together. We're going to continue our study on the cross. It's been a wonderful study so far. To me, it's very challenging, and I pray it is to you as well, and I pray it's helpful and God would use it in all of our lives. Um, I want to talk just a moment. I want to give a, a quote from a Roman orator named Cicero, and he basically summarized the world's attitude towards the cross. And he said this, he says, not only let the cross be absent from the person of Roman citizens, but let its very name be absent from their thoughts, eyes, and ears. Now, 2,000 years ago, when our Lord Jesus died on the cross, there was no uh, innate beauty in the cross. The cross has been despised through every generation. There's no beauty in the cross. Now, we understand what the Lord did for us on the cross was beautiful, and we thank God for it. But in and of itself, the cross is a form of capital punishment. The cross is a form of death and a cruel form of death, and only the worst of the worst went to the cross. And so there's no like natural beauty attached to the cross, its, its reputation, or anything like that. The cross represents for a believer what Jesus did for us, and we're very thankful for it. But the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is our cross as well. And that would be like a theme uh, of this study that we're doing. A couple of things to understand and to remember. Not only did Jesus die on the cross for our sins and rose again the third day, but when we come to the Lord by faith, uh, we might not have realized it the moment we came, but we come to know it from the Word of God and through our walk with the Lord that His cross is our cross. And we are to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death. Therefore, we, we have that newness of life that comes out of that, that resurrection life that our Lord has. And he went to the cross, and as soon as, as, soon as we, as believers, forget what the cross is all about. In other words, if the cross just becomes to us something that's sentimental, that we think of and, and sing songs about, or the cross becomes just a piece of, uh, pretty jewelry that we might wear around our neck and it ceases to be a place of death to self then the cross has become of none effect to us and Paul talks about the cross becoming of none effect in the Galatian church and it has to be a place of death that's God's purpose in the cross and again there's no, there's no words really in the in the human language to dis, to describe the hatred and detest that men have for the cross. And even in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, the Bible says he who is hanged is accursed of God. And Jesus died on the cross. He became a curse because he became sin. Now understand that when Jesus died, he, he never sinned. He's the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. But at that moment on the cross, there's a mystery of all mysteries. There's a a power of all powers, and a work that the Lord did. The Bible says he became sin. There wasn't sin in him. He never committed sin, and yet he took all the sins of the world upon him, and he on that cross became sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. There's nothing beautiful in that. The Bible even says in, in a wonderful chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about, 
prophesies about Jesus and his death on the cross, that there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. There was nothing naturally just beautiful. He was unrecognizable. He was so uh, wounded and bruised and bleeding that uh, there was nothing beautiful in that other than what he accomplished for us. And so it was as horrible as the cross was and is and is thought of in society. It was in man's eyes in Jesus' day, it was the only fitting end for Jesus. Think about that. Think about that hatred. They said we would rather Barabbas. Now, Pilate, who would, I would say was a weak man and a man pleaser, even he said, I find no fault in Jesus. Uh, I'll just scourge him and let him go. And they said, no, we, you let Barabbas go, a murderer. We'd rather him. Well, what shall I do with him that is called Christ? And they cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted the worst of the worst, worst for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it still is a measurement today of, of the hatred that men have of the cross and what was accomplished on the cross and, and those who try to live a crucified life like Paul. I'm crucified with Christ. Through all generations, those have been hated. Let me tell you that the, the world has no problem with religion, per se. The world is very religious in, in one, you know, in one sense, the world is very religion, religious. And the world doesn't have a problem with religions. They have a problem with Christ. They have a problem with why he went to the cross. They have a problem with the cross. They have a problem with his blood being shed and being told that they're a sinner and they need to be washed in that blood and that they need to repent and, and give their life to him and that he's the only way and the only way is through his death, burial and resurrection and our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a problem with that. The world does not have a problem or hatred for religion genuinely, uh, generally. They, they don't have a problem with a church that wants to uh, help people help people with social needs, learn how to read or give them water or give them food. They don't have a problem with a religion or a denomination that uh, ordains homosexuals into the ministry or that marries homosexuals. And these same denominations will, will lecture to other Christians how wrong we are for thinking that homosexuality is a sin. The world doesn't have a problem with those that are, uh, are such. They think, oh, well, these people are, are modern. They've gotten in the 21st century. They have a problem with the Christ of God. And he came to the cross. He said, for this purpose, I'm come to the world. He knew that he was going to that cross. They have a problem with that. And so the world does. And we're going to talk tonight. The, the, the message tonight in a nutshell is going to be the cross and the world. Now, what do we mean or what does the Bible mean when it talks about the world? Basically, when the Bible, scripturally speaking, speaks of the world, the Word of God is speaking about the world in total, the whole environment, the whole fallen world, man and mankind, uh, the, the sinfulness that was brought into the world and the sin by Adam and the fall of man as a result of that, and all the way that the world thinks and all the, the way that the world functions and all the things that the world pursues after and all the world 
uh, the selfishness of the world and the, the pride of, of man and so forth. That's all the world. And certainly there's a God of this world who is Satan, who, or, who governs because the Lord has allowed him to for a time, governs the affairs of, of the world. He's called the God with the little g of this world. Now we understand that even even creation, even natural things, you know, mountains and rocks and hills and streams and animals and all of it is crying out, the Bible says in, in Romans, for its redemption. Even the creature itself and creation is crying out for redemption. There's there's a taint of sin and a curse of sin that is polluted and and brought all of it under a curse and a and a judgment. God's going to bring it into it all. We did a study a long time ago in First and Second Peter, and at the end of Second Peter in chapter three, it talks about the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, wherein the heavens and the earth are going to pass away. They're going to be refined with fire. The elements are going to be melted with a fervent heat. This earth that we're on now even is going to be refined. There won't be one trace of the former sinful uh, creation that carries over into this new creation of God, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the eternity of eternities which are coming after the millennium, at the end of the millennium. And only thing that will live in, into that eternity of eternities will be of God. The Bible says that there's going to come a day where Christ is all in all. Think about it. Christ is all in all. You can hardly even imagine what that will be like. It will all be, Christ will be all in all. Everything that's in that new creation and in that eternity of eternities that, that continues to exist forward in the future forever will be Christ and will be of Christ. Nothing of that former world. All the world is going to be gone. I'm going to give you just a couple of uh, portions of scriptures here to, to show how the Bible describes the world. The Bible speaks of the ruler of this world. John 12, 30, 31. The Bible speaks of the course of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, which is according to the God of this world. The Bible speaks of the spirit of the world which is contrary to the Spirit of God. The Bible speaks of the form of this world, which is passing away, and the wisdom of this world, which crucified the Lord of glory. You want to talk about the wisdom of the world, how, and, and supposedly, you know, according to lost men, Christians are foolish and, and ignorant, and the world is so enlightened, according to the world. But the wisdom of this world took the Son of God who came to save and redeem them and us from our sin and to give us the gift of eternal life and to reconcile us unto God for all eternity. The world in its wisdom crucified the Lord of glory. That's the wisdom of this world. And that is a good description of the world. So it's a little wonder that God in his word says, love not the world. Okay, the whole world, all of it, the whole uh, environment of the world, everything that is of the natural man, everything that's of the life of the natural man. They are the, that's the world and that's the things of the world. Now I want to read, uh, turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to read 1 John chapter 2. This is just such a great passage on exactly what we're dealing with tonight. 1 John chapter 2 
And we're going to read 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And listen, and the world passeth away, like we described uh, in, in 2 Peter 3. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Praise God for that. But y'all, we are told not to love the world. And, and I'm just going to ask the question. I'm asking it to myself tonight. Is, am I worldly? Am I under the influence of worldliness? Am I uh, taken captive, so to speak, by some of the allurements and attractions of the world? I'm talking about as a believer, as a Christian, are you? You know, we might rightly condemn uh, rebellion that we see in people on TV, people that don't know the Lord. We see, uh, you know, mobs or rioting. Or maybe we'll look at some, some young people today and they're disrespectful and they're foul-mouthed and they curse and they're committing all kinds of uh, immorality and sin. And we condemn that and we should. But do we excuse our own worldliness? Do we have worldliness that we might consider uh, that, that would be termed maybe more refined? Yet it's worldly nonetheless, and it's deadly nonetheless. You know, the world's different from it for a teenager in some respects than it is for someone that's middle-aged or older in life. What's appealing to, to someone older is not appealing to someone who's younger. Don't think that our worldliness is any less worldly than someone who's in out and out rebellion and, you know, in all kinds of immorality. Worldliness is worldliness. And it's all contrary to the Lord. And what do I mean by worldliness that's more refined? What about things like uh, we're brought kind of under the spell? And I'm just using that uh, as a descriptive word. As Christians, as believers, we can be brought under the influence of worldliness in the form of art. Politics. We can't live without our, our politics. Uh, science. We're brought under the, the, the worldliness of a love for money or an ambition uh, to be popular among people or to have power in business or to be successful in business. And so um, this is still worldliness. It's just maybe different than worldliness for someone else. And we have to be careful and guard against it. And so I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm saying, God, show us. And we have to be honest. Show me. Show each person listening. Am I worldly in some areas? Because all of it is going to pass away. All of it is against the Lord Jesus Christ. It all contradicts the cross. And it all excludes the love of the Father. All that's in the world is not of the Father, the Bible says. And so it's, it's, it's amazing. But the word God says, he doesn't say, for example, what we just read in 1 John Chapter 2, the Bible does not say, well, just look, don't love the world too much. Love it a little bit, but not too much. Don't let it get the best of you. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And then he says, all of it, 
all of it's going to pass away. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is what the Bible says. And then he sums up all that's in the world, basically, in three categories. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. It's the chief, this is the roots of it all. And the pride of life. It is not of the Father, it is of the world. So you and I are told not to love it. And the cross is, is God's means by, by faith, reckoning in ourselves dead indeed uh, to sin and alive to God. That is by faith. And we only walk in the victory over worldliness, over sin, over self, as we are walking in communion and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon yourselves also to be, indeed to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. That is only uh, through the cross of our Lord, that is only by faith, and you and I can be Christians and be worldly at times. We can be Christians and we cannot be walking in close union with the Lord. We might uh, leave God basically sitting back here on a shelf and we go off to work. We leave God behind and we go off to school. Uh, maybe for a day, maybe for an hour, maybe for our uh, backslidden and it's been for months. We're still saved, we're still believers, we're still washed in the blood of Jesus. But we're not walking in that intimacy and union with Christ. And it is only in that intimacy and union with Christ by faith where we're reckoning ourselves dead to sin. We're not walking, if we're not walking in union with the Lord, then we're not going to be allowing the cross to bring death to self. And, and much of self will still continue to live. So we have to walk in closeness to God, in nearness to God. It is an ongoing, continual abiding in Christ. And we do it by faith. It's not of the world. I mean, it's, it's not of, of uh, worldliness. We have to walk with the Lord by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk with the Lord. And so, selfish man, and we still have a selfish man nature that's in us, even though we're born again, desires to fulfill its own desires and lusts. And I want to read this from Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says, You hath he quickened who were dead in sins and trespasses. Verses 1 through 3. Uh, and that's every man B.C. That's every man before we came to know Christ. Not all, not the, I mean, not, not some, not just the worst of sinners, but all men. We were by nature children of wrath. Let's read this. Where in times past ye walked according to, to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all, Paul even includes himself, we all had our conversation, our lifestyle, our behavior, our mindset. We all had our conversation in times past, before we came to Christ, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were selfish. That nature of Adam is selfish. That nature of Adam wants to satisfy Adam. That nature of self wants to satisfy self. That is a picture of the world and worldliness. 
And we are to be dead to that. And it's only by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says they that are Christ, that belong to Jesus by faith, by the new birth, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. And so that's going to be by faith we walk in that. That is like a doctrinal fact. But for me and you to experience that day by day and walk in that victory over the flesh and over the sin, over sin and over the devil and over self and to truly please God, we have to reckon ourselves by faith dead indeed to those things. Okay? In that he died, he died unto sin once. Speaking of Christ, he has no problems with sin. He has no uh, problems. He never committed a sin, but he is dead to it. And that he died, he died unto sin once. And that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Sin hath no dominion over him. He's dead to sin. And we don't want to revive sin or self in our own lives. If I'll stay in Christ, then I'll be where I need to be. I'll be walking in that same victory. Amen? And so, all of it is contrary. All this worldliness is contrary uh, to God. Worldly-mindedness, okay? And it's like a cancer, y'all. Think about it. Somebody might have cancer, and it goes undetected for a long time. They didn't have any pain. It didn't hurt them. And yet cancer was eating away at their body. A deadly cancer. It's deadly. And it was eating away at their body. Maybe eating away in their bones. And maybe far down the line. Then they realized that they started feeling some symptoms of that. And some pain from it. It's kind of like a termite. Have you ever seen a, uh, a structure or, or a building or a wood that's been uh, eaten up by termites? Literally, uh, they start from the inside out. And it can go on for a prolonged period of time and get to the point where there's nothing but the shell of the, let's say, a two-by-four left. Literally, you can poke your finger through a two-by-four that's been eaten by termites because they've eaten it from the inside, undetected, all the while eaten away, taken away the strength from that structure, the very uh, heart of that structure, to where there's nothing left, left but powder and it's about to collapse. And so it's eaten away the frame. And the same thing could say, uh, we could say of worldliness in the life of a believer. You might think, well, I've got, yeah, there's a few things. I'm enamored by uh, being popular. I'm enamored by uh, driven by success in business. I'm enamored by uh, politics and keeping up with that. Now, look, I'm, I'm not saying that those things in and of themselves are sinful arts and sciences and, and, and politics and, and business. I am saying that we cannot be brought under the spell or the power of those things. They cannot become idols to us or we, we become worldly. And sometimes we'll allow things to go in our life that aren't in and of themselves innately sinful, and yet they have far too much prominence and importance in our life, and we've been brought under the spell, so to speak, of worldliness. And we don't think it's a real problem, but it is a real problem. It's like that termite eating away at our spiritual house and the, and the strength of our spiritual house, house. And we don't even realize that it's affected us to that degree. So it's so important that we stay free from that, that we, we ask God to search us and 
And, and you know, the, the worldliness will unseat Christ from his throne of our heart and lives where he should be, even though we're a Christian. I'm going to give it a wonderful illustration. Y'all, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if it's true or not true, but either way, it's a great illustration. It was reported in the book that I read as though it's true. So let's just go with it. But either way, what a great illustration. There is a certain mountain near the, the sea, sea coast that was uh, a mountain of iron ore. And so the mountain itself, uh, this is also called lodestone. The mountain itself was actually magnetic. And so it had a magnetic field. And anything that would, when ships would pass, you know, that area, they would be far enough offshore, but they could actually feel the ships have reported, and the captains of the ship and the crew, that they actually could feel its influence. They could all actually feel the pull of this magnetic mountain up on the coast on their ships. They could feel it with their anchor chains and their anchors. And some would pass by there, and they wouldn't really even notice. At first, there would just be a slight pull. And maybe it would, get, it would begin to pull their ship slightly off course, not a lot, but slightly off course where they desired to go in the course that they had set. But the, the mountain began to pull on them with its, its magnetic field. And they, they didn't give it much fear. It didn't cause alarm in the captain or the crew because it was so minimal. But after a while, it pulled them closer and closer and it began to pick up speed. Their ship got way off course. Their ship began to be pulled strongly uh, into this mountain. And it's even reported that uh, as a vessel was drawn closer and closer to this mountain, to shore, that it began to affect and pull the very bolts out of the ship. The things that held the ship together, the bolts that held it together, the nails that were in the wooden planks on the deck began to come loose until and fastened. they were actually fastened to the mountain. Again, this might not be a real... Uh, actual factual uh, story, but it's a great illustration. And it began to pull the ship apart. The things that were metal came loose from the ship and began to attach themselves to the mountain, to the very ship itself uh, was a total wreck and fell apart. And you know what, y'all, it's a great illustration in this sense that that is like a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven being an illustration of sin. A little worldliness. We come under it and we think, you know, that's not really that big a deal, my worldliness. This is nothing immoral. It's nothing innately sinful. But have I given myself over to worldliness? Because it will sap me of my spiritual strength. I'll give some examples of worldliness that we might not think of about being worldly. Do we dread the, the rejection or the frowns on the faces of men in the world? In other words, do we, we just can't stand being rejected, being ridiculed by the world, being mocked or minimized by the world, by being thought foolish by the world? Well, let me tell you something. If we serve Jesus Christ, we're going to be thought as being fools. Paul was. We're going to be thought less of. So some people will get to witness to and they'll come to Christ and be saved. But as a whole, the world frowns on us. The world frowns on believers that truly believe the Bible. You tell someone you believe Genesis to Revelation. You believe that God 
the story of Noah in the in the ark and the flood. They're gonna they're gonna ridicule you. Do we care so much about what they think that we would rather compromise Christ than to than to separate from the world? Think about another form of worldliness. How much we are, uh, how much time we spend on worldly little I would call them trifles. I'm guilty of it myself. Hobbies. Leisure time, as though it's owed to us somehow. I know God gives His people rest. Don't get me wrong. There are times we need rest. There are times we need to to relax morally. You know, I mean, not morally, us uh, physically, and, and and relax and be refilled. But the times we spend involved in in worldly pursuits that are not sinful, and it's actually actually robbing us or cheating ourselves from the time that we could have spent and should have spent with the Lord, being strengthened. Let's say we spend a day or afternoon after work uh, in, in our worldly pursuits and hobbies. They're not sinful, but they're just worldly. And then we wake up the next day and we're not prepared for the day. We're not prepared because we haven't spiritually been strengthened. We robbed ourselves the day before or the morning of, and we're not fully armed with the armor of God and we're not ready for the spiritual battle that lies ahead this is worldliness and how much how much uh another form of worldliness how much are our the choices that we make governed by what men, men say what what's popular what people suggest we do as opposed to what God says we should do do we make decisions based on, hey, this makes common sense. This is what everybody's doing. Everybody says we ought to do it. Everybody says I should do it. Or do we make our decisions for the course of our life based on, thus saith the Lord Almighty. That's a form of worldliness when we're governed by, even in some areas of our life, by the world. And how, how uh, easily we can flip into or slip into worldliness and we ought to count it a privilege to suffer for his name's sake if the world frowns upon us and it will then we ought to rejoice because we're partakers with christ in his suffering he says on it's given to us and i'm paraphrasing from philippians chapter one on the behalf of christ not only to uh to 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 be saved and to know him and to walk with him but to suffer for his namesake. And that is part of the privilege of knowing the Lord. Y'all, I want to close with this thought tonight. I want us to take a few minutes to pray tonight. Any type of worldliness is worldliness. It's not of God. And we need to guard against it, y'all, because it, it's a compromise. And we would oftentimes, God forgive us, we would rather compromise Christ than to offend the world or to have the world frown upon us or to miss out on something worldly. And I'll be honest with you, I, I, I'll never forget this story, a true story, an account, uh, I was reading a book by R.A. Torrey and he, he talks about a friend of his that was a believer. And Torrey was speaking at a big conference and preaching the word of God. And on the front row, he sees this old friend of his that he hadn't seen in many, many years. It was a believer. And all through the sermon, all through the message, this man on the front throw just had his head buried, his face buried in his hands. 
He was discouraged. He was distraught. It was obvious. He was he was beside himself. When the message was over, the meeting was over, Tori immediately goes to his friends and says, What is it, brother? I haven't seen you in so long. What's wrong? Have you taken your eyes off of the Lord? Have you taken your eyes off of the Savior? What's wrong? And the man was, he could barely speak. He was so troubled. And he said, Brother Tory, he goes, I don't know what to do. He said, I brought my children to the world and I can't get them back. I brought my children to the world and I can't get them back. He tried to talk to him about the Lord now. His children were grown. His children had their own families and they grew up knowing the Lord. They grew up in the things of God. And this man wanted them to know the Lord. And yet he pushed them into the world because, and we went to later in life, tried to talk to them about Jesus. They weren't living for God as children. And they said, well, dad, you're the one that pushed us into the world. You pushed us into being successful in the world, to being accepted in the world, to doing great in school, to doing great in business, to doing, uh, being well-rounded. And, and, and now you're talking to us about Jesus. And the man was distraught. We have to be careful those things aren't all sinful, sports and the arts and the different things that we're involved in. God, certainly God wants us to do well in school. But do we place such an importance of those things over, in any measure, over our love for God, our devotion for God, our submission to the Lord and to his word? Nothing should rival or challenge the Lord at all in our heart of hearts. And worldliness is a trap. We need to be careful. Those of you that are parents and have children, certainly you want them to do well in life. But I can tell you this, don't you push them into the world. The world is not going to be there for them. Christ will be there for them. Be careful. Be careful that what you're doing, the hobbies, the extracurricular pursuits, the education, everything, be careful that you're being led by the Lord, is all I'm saying, and what you're doing. And what you're influencing your children to do. We want them to do so well at ball practice and be a starter. But do we want them to do well with Jesus? We make sure they make it to practice. We make sure they get their project done for school. We make sure they don't miss school. Do we have the same uh, or even greater we should desire for them? Have you prayed today? Have you spent time in the word? Have you told anybody about Jesus lately? Are you tithing? Are you serving the Lord? Tell me what God's showing you. Talking to them about the Lord. Building them up, them up in the faith. Be careful. Okay, and I'll close with this thought. Until we get ourselves under control, so to speak, with worldliness. And I mean bring, bring it under, under the authority of the Lord. Confessing our sin. Letting God show us and then deal with those sinful things in our life and putting them away by faith. Until we deal with ourselves and our own worldliness... There's really no sense in us wondering why the church is in the state it's in today. It's so easily to po- easy to point the finger and say, look how horrible the church is. Look how backslidden the church is. Look at that doctrinal error, the gross doctrinal error that's in the church today. Look at the lack of discipline that's in the church today. And we look at it. Look how modern and worldly the church has become today. How corrupt the practices in the church have become today. <clears throat> and they have, for the, for the most part. But until we get ourselves where we need to be, we need to be careful 
pointing those things out. When we get ourselves where we need to be and God can help us and it doesn't have to take a long time, he can help us to get that uh, beam out of our own eye, then we'll still see clearly to help others and, and to help the church world and to rightly represent Christ before lost men and to rightly represent Christ before saved men. <clears throat> the heresy of all heresies, one man of God said, is a worldly spirit. And I don't always do this, but I just jotted down a prayer, <clears throat> excuse me, for us to close with tonight <clears throat> to lead us into our altar time. Please spend your time with the Lord and seek the Lord. I just wrote this down. Lord, help us. Set us free from worldliness. We allow you and we allow your cross to have its full work in us, causing us to be dead to this world and alive to God. I'll close with this scripture in Galatians 6.14. Apostle Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing I'm going to glory in. Nothing in my past, nothing in in my worldly success. Nothing, but God forbid that I should should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. By the cross of our Lord, God let us be dead to this world, all of it, not just the sinful things, but all of it, and alive only to you through that same cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.